Baruch Gatoy Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haloam Asher Kadishanu Bimitzbotav Netzivanu Nushel Podcast and Podcast Host that is bad at Hebrew. Welcome back to I Haven't Heard That Name in Years, an incredibly lazy memoir where I interview random people from my life and try to get them to confirm that things in my life actually happened. This is a very long interview, so I'm going to keep this short. Uh, this is a close friend of mine, uh, and she is a amazing rabbi. Um, and I have always been a huge fan of her career, and we discuss it at length, as well as our lengthy friendship. Uh, I met uh, the good rabbi Marley Wiener when I was 13 years old, and we have lived together twice and had myriad adventures. And I'm super excited that I finally got her on the podcast for a awesome interview where we talk over each other, wax philosophical about God, and go through a, a incredibly dense brick of memories like... It's, and it was awesome. Uh, all right, so I am excited to share this with you. Boom. Podcast. Start. Now. Welcome back, friends, family, parasocial relationships, humans, non-humans, and asuras, which I, I want to use that as a signifier since I've been re reading the Lotus Sutra, but let's not. Um, <laughs> just today, just today, I will address the asuras, but following that, uh, we are back to, I haven't heard that name in years, following the theme song, following the intro, uh, so I have to tell you again, of course. Otherwise, you might forget where you are. You were lost in the misty bars of that handsome devil, and now you have returned to reality. So, or the reality that I've constructed, the audio reality, in your mind. Uh, and welcome uh, today's guest, the Honorable Rabbi Marley Wiener. Hello. How are you doing today? Hi. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm a beast at podcast intros. Check that out. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Some things never change. Some things never change. Uh, I mean, at the beginning of, uh, like, when we first met, uh, I'm were podcasts even a thing yet? Because that would have been 2001. was barely a thing. Like, Yeah, the internet was barely a thing. <laughs> when we met, it was the era where uh, you flirted with people in your AOL away messages by leaving, like, very pointed AOL away messages. Oh, man. do you remember your original AIM screen name? Yes, and I'm not going to say it because I still use it as an internet handle here and there, and uh, you know I don't Ooh, want. People, uh, okay. I don't oh. want people finding me on Reddit. <laughs> I'm going to endeavor to not say anything that uh, I don't want on the internet. Yeah, absolutely. We we have powerful editing tools, and someone else edits this, so my usual uh, goofs and ADHD nonsense might not even enter the chat at all. Um, in fact, they, I, they're pretty sure they won't. That's why producers are cool. Hello, B. Thank you again for uh, 
editing my garble you are a lovely human and the none of my shit would exist without you because i don't want to put in the effort uh so <laughs> uh usually uh, I will ask, like, do you remember beating me? Because memory, like, my memory is like a broken spaghetti strainer. Uh, but I actually do re remember meeting you for the first time. Uh, it's Which is about 25% of people, like, knew of me before they actually spoke to me. Um, <laughs> or, or maybe larger than that. I don't know. Um, I don't have a pie chart for people's opinions of me. But, yeah. Uh, so, I actually do remember meeting you, but could we get that from your perspective, like, the first time we talked? <laughs> Was that, like, at the bus stop when we were, like, in junior high? Was that the first time you spoke, Damn. Was that... Yep. Yep. Damn right. That was it. We were on the bus platform in junior high uh, back in the day. <laughs> we were babies. Yeah. You were so cute Ooh. and small. Mm-hmm. Yep. And we already had strong opinions about God, which is pretty cool. Uh, not, not the usual millennial thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't, truly, I don't know. I think mm -hmm. the problem with because this is going to end up being the God episode. There's no way it can't be. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I think truly, like, the problem with millennials is not that they don't have opinions about, like, the divine. It's more so their mm -hmm. opinions don't jive with their parents' opinions, so they don't have, like, nice buckets to put it in, so they flail around, like, uh... noodles and go, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Even though it does to a lot of people, and if you get them talking, they will, yeah, I think we're unusual in that, like, we found boxes pretty early on. Mm -hmm. And at least in, I think in both of our cases, I guess not the boxes our parents, like, neatly prepared for us, although also neither of our parents were really interested in preparing neat little boxes for us. Yeah, we got lucky. Both of us got very lucky you know one of the things i always notice uh as far as you know living in and around new york and my uh, tenure in stand-up comedy where people show up from all walks of life all states all kinds of things is i'm like oh my god i really dodged a bullet on getting indoctrinated into a religion that didn't make a whole lot of sense rules wise i got so goddamn lucky like we, you know both of us did is we both have interfaith parents where we have like exposure to different things and we had the freedom to choose what matches you know our beliefs and to bring it back to our first meeting if i recall correctly our first meeting uh it was me baby witch i've evolved much since then but me baby witch buying tarot cards at the store and learning about things kind of and having some buddhist influence from my dad and uh you already connected to jewish spirituality and we had like a spirituality conversation on the bus platform before getting on our respective uh big yellow metal things with no seat belts uh <laughs> the early 2000s ladies and gentlemen oh, yeah i mean do they have seat belts now i'm not know. sure i don't think they do i think we're like still yeah. very cool with putting a bunch of like tiny minor children in a giant thing with no seatbelts and sending them off to their doom. Yeah. I mean, I've seen videos, like, I've seen 
like people, I guess they're bus apologists, <laughs> yeah, like school bus apologists show videos of crash test dummies. Like, no, that front seat is like padded. So when you slam into it, it's like a little airbag. And I'm like, yeah, but do you have to slam into it? Could we not put a, a, a belt there for not slamming into it? <laughs> With our tiny little child brains. But they, like, I actually saw a crash test video trying to justify not giving kids seatbelts. Um, that, I have to find that because I'm sure it's, like, wildly outdated now. And didn't there used to be, like, crash dust test dummy toys when we were kids? That memory just jumped into my head. I oh my really God. do not remember that. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. You did not grow up with a brother, which may have changed your exposure to various types of action figures. Yes, um, I, I am the I am the oldest of the children, and we are both girls for a given value of girls. So, yeah, yeah. So I I had um, a significant amount of Ninja Turtle exposure, and uh, God God knows what else. I think he had like some Beetlejuice house or something. Mm. Uh, but anyway, back to God. Um, I mean, we did have a lot of friends with older brothers, which is how I ended up a fan yeah. of George Carlin at like 13, which was maybe right. not the best, but you know, whatever. Hey, man, my grandmother used to listen to Sam Kinison while she was babysitting me. Uh, and that was, in, that was in Ben Salem when I was not yet seven years old. So, hey... I ended up doing so. I ended up being a very loud comedian. So, a jury's out on whose fault that was. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So, do you remember anything? I, I know the conversation was about religion. Uh, do, do you like remember anything about the cut? Like, what were we even talking about? I wonder. Like, I truly do not. I mean, we would have been what 13, 14, I think. So mm -hmm. I would have just had or been preparing for my bat mitzvah because I had mine a little late. Um, right. And that would have also put me square in my, you know, culturally necessary, like every, you know, middle class American white chick at like 13, unless, you know, you live in the middle of like satanic panic land gets, mm -hmm. you know, your obligatory pack of tarot cards so i was in the middle of that as well um uh, but for me it it did not stick per se um mm -hmm. and yeah truly i do not remember that conversation very much except that you had a lot of personality and i tend to be drawn to people with a lot of personality and now here we are yeah, uh, same same here. It's just awesome. Well, the one thing I do remember about that conversation, I'm pretty sure, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, you already wanted to be a rabbi. Is that is that correct? No, that or... was, that was no? Much later. Okay, I was later. I don't think I figured that one out until I was like 17. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know that you've always been like, like very like, you know, resonated with that faith. I just wasn't sure how long, that's still a long time. You know, Ooh. most people like change career paths uh, several times between 17 and now I'm still twisting in the wind here at 35. Uh, but, you know, in my defense, various art forms seem to like, we got a writer's strike uh, for a second there live. Like I kind of Irish goodbye, stand up comedy 
due to uh, the disease floating around in the air and the, the poorly ventilated basements and droplets in which comedy takes place. Uh, oh, but I... You truly, yeah. like, I... I, I I am a judgy, judgy, judgy person, sort of. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't know, so often when I go and watch stand-up comedy, especially like, well, no, all stand-up comedy, I'm like, hmm, how much of this would be better served by like going to therapy? Right. <laughs> like how much of this I... is like something that should be healed from? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you're not wrong, especially when you're uh, talking about specifically, like, insecure uh, straight male comedy uh, is its own genre. Uh, yeah, and you're, you're not talking about that, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, even in my case, I one of the things I noticed when I quit st doing stand-up, or when I stopped doing stand-up, I don't want to tempt fate, because if I say I quit, I'm going to end up going back. Uh, um, but... <laughs> When I when I stopped doing stand up, I noticed that every time I went through something traumatic, which was several times, I still was like writing bits in my head and going like, oh, it'd be great if I could do this bit about this. And I was like, is that that's not I, I should be processing my feelings with a, some level of seriousness yeah, and speaking to people and not just like going to an open mic attended by uh, 20 people, 17 of them comics, two of them drunk people who wandered into the room right. and just spouting personal information and having people laugh at me about it. It's sort of... Um, makes tr it difficult to react to trauma with any kind of normalcy yeah. you and, know? and i mean like um, to, to be clear and like a little less judgmental um that's mm -hmm. not me then saying like don't turn your trauma into humor i'm jewish we're both jewish yeah um <laughs> but and like as somebody who is also in a field that is populated by people who go into it because of unresolved shit that they have um, you mm -hmm. can still do the work. I mean, I think, you know, Hannah Gadsby is like an amazing example of like, you know, coming out and forming boundaries around like how I will allow myself to be treated in the name of comedy. But like, she didn't quit stand up. She just, you know, did some healing and put some boundaries in place and figured out a way to practice her art in a way that was like nurturing rather than self-destructive. And like, that's always the thing. It's not like, oh, you shouldn't be a comic because you have trauma and you should go to therapy instead. Mm, no, more... there would be no comedians left. Yeah. Uh, like, there... <laughs> maybe, no, maybe like go talk about it in therapy, heal, figure out, how, mm. you know, in from a place of like self-love, how you want to use these stories and then go use them and, you know, have a healthier life when you're not on stage. Yeah, I mean, like anything, it's a balance. Like, so, so, like a lot of these kinds of conversations, I always seem to come back to the thing where we're just like, you need a happy medium more than anything else. Is you just need to figure out where the line is. And for me, the distressing thing wasn't so much that I was writing bits in my head because, like, there I had talked about trauma and stuff on stage before. It was more that I was writing bits in my head every single time something happened. It, like, it yeah. was a hardwired reaction to immediately try to turn it into comedy. And I know that, like, my tendency to do that before... Uh, and also just like the lack of boundaries, just the oversharing with random people 
did get kind of destructive and it was also just kind of alarm it doesn't feel like a natural reaction now um right. it took a little while like i still i still have issues uh doing that and it's not necessarily that it's bad bad and yeah like you said we're we're jews we laugh at trauma it's it's, it's a really do, it's a you really know healing way to mm -hmm. deal with like mm -hmm. so you know um for for the podcast so that everybody is aware i work at a college i'm not gonna say which one but like yeah um and we invited in a speaker to talk about like the history of anti-semitism and um we were having this conversation with a group of you know non-jewish administrators uh folks in residential life um and the speaker was sort of going through the history of sort of what anti-Semitism is, how it presents in the world, um, and, you know, Jewish experiences throughout history. And myself and um, one of the, one of my staff members were cracking jokes because, you know, that's how we deal with the unbearable bleakness of, you know, all the pogroms. And then I looked mm -hmm. around the room and several of the non-Jewish staff members were holding back tears a little bit. Like they looked very, very mm. visibly upset. And I was like, oh, right. <laughs> the, these things that I have learned to laugh at, to deal with are actually quite upsetting. Um, yeah, and we're pretty desensitized because we have to be. Honestly, if I were to really internalize what was happening right now, uh, like on a deep, I would never stop screaming. You know, like <laughs> we yeah. have to... We have to do something, but we also need to not brush. Every it's always a balance. You just not brush everything else as a joke. Otherwise, there's no sense of urgency and uh, no need to solve anything. Just like, ah, whatever. Silly. Haha. Balance. <laughs> yeah. Balance is key. Yeah. And plus, there's Rabbi, it comes on the podcast and things get heavy. <laughs> Oops. Oh, no, I, I love this. No, I, I absolutely love this. Like, and also you're a, a necessary part of my life story because you've been present in like virtually every era of it. Like this is the this is the era's tour. Uh, me and Marley. <laughs> edition not not miss swift um so yeah let's let's get back to that uh here here's something because this is a interesting converging of timelines that's happened in my life were you there for my 16th birthday what was what happened on your 16th birthday it was that uh, we rented out the community center uh like the entire community center over close to overlook elementary i forget the name of that park it begins with an r um but we like rented out the entire community center and i know that there was like three different people that were there that have been interviewed on this podcast and it's like starting to turn into like one of those movies where they follow different people and different stories but i was giving out like awards uh written in sharpie oh, on broken pieces yeah of wood. i still yeah. have that at my parents house bam yeah do you remember what i gave you an award for <laughs> All I remember. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm dying because I didn't yeah. remember what the actual award was for. But at some point over the mm -hmm. course of the evening, it got crossed out and replaced with horniest. 
I did I do that or was that that somebody else? What I need to know. Well, now we need to do for some forensics. We need to find that at your parents' house, and we need to look at the handwriting to see if it's my handwriting that did that or somebody it else. I don't. Because if memory serves, that was the party where I met one of your friends who was dating somebody else at the time and spent about two months like hopelessly overinvested in him and that was very silly and i don't even remember the individual in question's name oh my god yeah we were we were 16 or or 17 you you would have been you're a libra so you would have been old you're older than me yes, um, I, I don't know why i remember that you're a libra but not your actual birthday I mean, uh, <laughs> one i don't believe in astrology but two i'm such a libra mm. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, I mean, I, and I am in an even weirder camp that says sun, sun sign astrology is reductive, which is like a weirder camp that's like, oh, well, this is, yeah, it's real, but like, you need to look at the moon. Um, this is like a strange hill to die on, but hey, uh, this is where I live. Uh, <laughs> there, there's a part of me that like wants to go hunt down my birth certificate and find you know, the exact time, because I certainly don't know right. that, and, like, see, um, yeah. It's fun, and, you know, the, the way my astrologer friend has described it is that it's like a microprocessor chip that you run a soul through. So it can do all kinds of things. It's just there's, like, some wiring that it's working through, but it can do all kinds of things. There's all kinds of information you can throw through it, and there's all kinds of results that happen, but the, the microchip does, in fact, still exist um, but, uh, but then all kinds of stuff can happen on the end, you know, computers get viruses and start acting slow, uh, which, uh, in this metaphor, I would call that PTSD. <laughs> like a person that's supposed to be gregarious by their sign could suddenly become quiet. Um, but it's also mostly just fun. Every, everything like that, I feel like should be treated with playful curiosity because, uh, you know, um... It's just, yeah, you know, if you don't have, like, the hard evidence all the time, you know, it's just, it's fun. I don't yeah, know. I mean, you have different, <laughs> yeah. Having, having never encountered one of these people in the wild, but apparently other people have who, like, feel the need to make, like, strong pronouncements about, you know, other people just based on their sign. But other than that, like, mm -hmm. it's fun. It's kind of goofy. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, yeah. I, I am, I am a consummate, like, peacemaker, entertainer, loves mm -hmm. the shiny things in life type mm -hmm. person. And here we are. I have all the feelings all the time. I was a very intense teenager. Yeah, we, we, we all were. It, honestly, being a teenager and being smart is an intense experience. Like, being any kind of nerd or, like, air quotes gifted or anything, uh, it is an intense... Oh, here's a question, because <laughs> were you in Apex in elementary yes, school? Yes, yes, I was. Apex? Yeah, buddy. Oh, my God. The Illuminati. No, <laughs> I, I think I've talked, to, I've talked to three different... I've interviewed three different people that were in Apex. Um. Okay, so so story time, because 
I assume you've already explained what Apex is in like another episode. Oh yeah, three times. To- three times now. Right. Um, it's the gifted kid program. That it's the gifted kid program that uh, elementary school students in the Abington School District were put in uh, solely based on their IQs, which I did not know until uh, when somebody in elementary school told me is that they actually gave us IQ tests and separated us out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so yeah. So, so funny story. We were supposed to do um, Macbeth, um, and then Columbine happened, and the district decided that it was too violent for I don't remember whether I was in fifth or sixth grade for like young children to be reading, and so then I never got to like read Macbeth in elementary school, and I'm still mad about it. Obviously, I have since read Macbeth. I love Macbeth, but you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's kind of wild that for Apex they picked the the one that's supposed to be cursed. Um, that like you're supposed to call it the Scottish play if you do it and everything like that. Did they now? I'm, was the Scottish play something that they like ran in? Because you were in, you were a theater kid, correct? Yes. Like, yeah. Did we do the Scottish play? I feel like I we remember never that did any. Something, but... No, did we do straight plays? I think we did in high school, but they were all very stupid. So no, we didn't do any. Yeah. yeah. No, we we didn't do the Scottish play. Oh, shit. Were we in the mystery of Edwin Drew together? We were. We were. Oh, my God. Okay, so if you are not aware of this musical, this musical is a... So good. So weird. An incredible musical. Uh, It is based on the uh, Charles Dickens book that he died in the middle of writing. Uh, Charles Dickens died in the middle of writing a murder mystery and the musical uh, had the front half of the plot and then it had several alternate endings for who the murderer was. And the audience got to pick like what the alternate ending was. Um, do you, I, I try to get other people to tell the story so it's not just me monologuing. Uh, do you remember uh, the spat between Mr. Kleba and the dare officers and what they had to do to change the play? <laughs> oh, was this the chocolate milk thing? Yes. <laughs> um, because this this being a show about excess and murder most foul, there are copious references to substances of both a refreshing and an illicit nature. And they were all required to be changed to milk and cookies. Um, because just, just to paint the scene, the youngest people in this play were like 13 years old. And the oldest were like 15 yeah 15 um this is junior high yeah this this we had a really fantastic junior high theater program the high school one was not nearly as good um Mm. yeah so all references to things of an illicit nature were changed to milk and cookies i also what was i what was i going to say about the mystery of edwin drude oh the fact that they cast um a seventh grader to play the creepy uncle and <laughs> oh my god i forgot about yeah, that it, shit. um <laughs> and this, this 13 year old child was already like six feet tall and had this basso profundo and like nicest guy you could ever meet such a sweet guy but like amazing actor he 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 was very 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 creepy 
Yeah, he he did. He later went on to do Audrey too in Little That's Shop, correct. if I'm not mistaken. Yes. And I, I remember that because I was stage crew, and uh, he couldn't burp on cue, so I had to burp for Audrey at the oh, end. And that was the like, Audrey I, and they gave me burp? a credit. That's hilarious. I was, I was the Audrey Burr, but like back to the milk and cookies thing, I tell people that story all the time because Mr. Kleba, he was really ramping it up because he was mad that they made him change it because they definitely were keeping it the same initially. And I just remember this day where he kind of stomped in a room like, well, the dare officers, like, you know, he's not saying narc because he's a junior high school theater teacher, but you can tell that he's like, oh my god, these guys. Um, he's like, well, Delaware officers aren't into it, so, you know, we're changing everything into milk and cookies, you know. And then, uh, but the best is the opium den scene. They changed, like, fucking nothing. Like, they had cookies in their hands, but other than that, people are clearly nodding out on mattresses. There's, like, five... <laughs> mattresses on the stage yeah people are laying back like they're like whacked out on opium and she's just like here's your cookies have a nice dream <laughs> like i i tell people this shit all the time oh and then also saul uh the the guy who played the creepy uncle really uh the the rest wrestling they call this no selling which means just doing it with a straight face not making a big show of it he was just like do you want some chocolate milk? It's a great vintage that I got from Hershey Park. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, looking back on it, I'm like, huh. That's what y'all picked for a bunch of third, like, simultaneously. Oh, very God, Mr. Cleveland. very genius. much like the early 2000s were a different time. Yeah, it, not, not for nothing. I mean, Little Shop, also not 100% a high schooler thing. You know, I know they have, like, it's nowhere near as uh, edgy as Drood. Um, but, yeah, Little, <laughs> Little Shop also I has mean, there, there are There are also references to drug abuse in, uh -huh. in Little Shop. And domestic abuse. And domestic abuse. There, there is... There is domestic abuse there is, in Little there's Shop. There is absolutely <laughs> domestic abuse. I remember because I was good friends with the girl who played Audrey. I remember uh, having to paint her up with a shiner for uh, her mid-show uh, uh, solo. Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness. Somewhere that's green. Yeah. What a what a great God. No, yeah, suddenly she, she shredded that suddenly as well. Seymour. Oh, but suddenly Seymour also, is when she had a shiner. Not, yeah. Right. Right. Uh, bless. Yeah, I you know what I I miss uh, every time I look at the chain restaurant that continues to change over in that location is that like what, what was a hula hands or something you know? Oh my they, god, I have I have a yesterday yeah. story about that hula hands. Yeah, literally a yesterday story. I'm doing an event uh, this weekend at work, and the guy that I hired to do catering apparently used to manage the hula hands in Center City, and apparently when we were like we little ones somebody got shot at that hula hands like one employee took what? out another employee and he had to come in and manage it oh my god uh and he's like do you remember <laughs> this and i'm like bro i was literally like seven years old i'm sorry i don't damn uh well every every memory's got a little philly flavor we have to add to it after the fact you know like inside ladies out and when gentlemen. we have like the gold core memory yeah um 
I think about whenever that happens, I think about it inside out when the, she has the little core memory and then the sad person pokes it. It's like, oh no, it's mixed up now. <laughs> oh no. It, it, yeah. So close, you get like whiffs of uh, Philadelphia tucking uh, snowballs with batteries mm -hmm. at Santa Claus. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, problematic uh, uh, sentiments that were later edited by society at large. Uh, but hey, it's okay. We made it here. Uh, and both of us are obsessed with morality, so we made it. That's fine. Um, <laughs> all right, so mo moving along, uh, chugging along, because I also don't want this to run too far over. Um, oh, yeah, so uh, going into high school um that i think i just gonna say i don't we don't have to go into this too much but uh you being the, the wicked witch of the west and wizard of oz's boss that was like i i remember when that casting choice went up and they usually cast seniors for major roles and then we all saw that casting thing go up and not a single per i don't think a single person argued with it we were all like oh yeah that's a great idea oh no one was... one person did but that was because she well she wanted to be wicked witch of the west which i was like i don't know what to yeah. tell you friend um i don't know what to tell you it was the right choice most people were just like yo that's a great idea as like inspired outside the box casting <laughs> it's like fuck yeah perfect we got this yeah uh it's fun um, i made a child cry Yay! And then felt extraordinarily <laughs> bad about it, but you know, we do our best. Yeah, I mean, you're a villain. That's what you're supposed to do. The child cries, and then they're emotionally invested when you melt. That's you know, like you have to. Be... Do you remember? Um, oh my God, our our director was so incompetent. Do you remember the? Uh, mm -hmm. I think it was the last day of the show. They glitched it out. They got the lighting cues wrong, and we all had to cover for the fact that uh, yeah. the uh, the 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 crew was striking this was striking the Wicked Witch's castle set, uh, and then the lights went up, <laughs> and the scarecrow just yeah, yelled right. out, "We're going back to Oz. It's magic. It must be a magical castle." Yeah. <laughs> It was, and then Joe, who has been interviewed on this podcast before, uh, Mr. Joey Petten was the Tin Man in this adventure. Yes, he so, was. Yeah. Scariest he did, he did Tin Man I've job. ever seen. Did he shave for that? I I think that there might have even been a part of high school where he just, he didn't have a beard at all. Um, I, th I think it eventually came back, but there was a period of high school where he didn't have a beard weird times. yeah the memories all right so uh let's let's fast forward so we're at a high school uh we've parted ways for two years save the occasional visits in the summer um so we live we live somewhat close to each other i would consider it walking distance but i walk uh like three miles at a time so that's how it is um oh and then i i'm pretty sure you you went to bartered so i'm sure i visited you in new york a couple yeah. of times right we, we did comic-con yeah. together Right. What did you, did you dress up? What were you? I you, did. You I, uh, yeah. yeah, I went as. Oh, oh, Firefly. I remember now. Yeah. Cause that is an easy cosplay <laughs> and I mm -hmm. am lazy. Yeah. 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 Oh God. Firefly. That takes me back. Was that, I think that might've been the year I did sexy flying spaghetti monster. That's entirely possible. 
I don't I don't know. Either I didn't dress up because I was working there, which happens a lot, which happened with most of those comic cons. You were um, working we did have a there because there was some shenanigans I think you did with the badges to get me in. Yeah, God. Wasn't those are the I, days oh when God, the what security was was... Wasn't I Jenny Breeden for a while? Yes. Yeah, you were. Um God, I love uh back in the day when comic-con had less security when you could just grab somebody's badge that was working there run outside and just pop it on someone's neck and be like that's you now um i don't think that uh i don't think that works anymore and on the comic-con episode we were talking about how like in the early days of san diego comic-con you could get away with like photoshopping a badge and we had like hunter s thompson press badges <laughs> we were we were wearing um Oh God, good shit. Um, but then uh, the uh, the first time we lived together, we've lived together twice. Uh, the first time we lived together was the Lily Safra internship in Boston. Um, could you give like a general, like quick synopsis of that program and us getting into it? Also, side note, I just went and looked at uh, Jenny Breeden's um, website. Apparently she has children now, so that's fascinating. Um, that's fucking cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I occasionally go back and look because she's got a slice of life webcomic, uh, and I love her so much because a, a lot of that was the reason I had that like comic con social circles. I became a fan of that. And then I sort of became part of the, not part of the comic lore. I wasn't in uh, devil's panties ever, but I was like in, inside like this. I was about to say, weren't you a contributing figure for like a composite character? Yeah, there was a composite intern character that I did not, the, the visual basis was uh, Alexis Milan, the other intern for Silent Devil uh, that she was printing on at the time. Uh, but yeah, I, I was a composite character. There was a, another comic in the puddle that had uh, another slice of life comic in the puddle that had a crossover with her comic at one point and that I actually did get drawn into. I don't know if she wrote my name, but I was like physically drawn into it twice. <laughs> my God, but, this is bringing up so many memories. Um, oh yeah, early aughts web comics were something else. I mean, both of us were way into that. Yes. Like the, you know, yeah, your questionable contents and something positives and all that good shit. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, bad decision, dinosaur. You you were the, the you were the one that put me onto bad decision, dinosaur. Who I still think about. Fascinating. <laughs> like, um, mm -hmm. But no, the Hadassah Brandeis uh, Institute for uh, Jewish Studies. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> this was definitely a Jewish gender idea. studies. Yeah, Jewish gender studies. I know, <laughs> um, but yeah, I so. I decided at 17 I wanted to be a rabbi and went off to Barnard College to study Jewish studies and anthropology and was looking for a summer resume filler. And the Hadassah Brandeis Institute is an institute at Brandeis College to study Jewish studies um, and to do some of your own research and to go to a Jewish studies conference and also to help a professor working on something related to Jewish studies to uh, be basically an intern, a research intern. So I got to help deal with citations for a book about uh, religious weddings and feminism and definitely like uh, adjuncted a class uh, at the college where I now work 
and some of the stuff that I, you know, learned when I was copy editing that book definitely made it into that class. Um, and then my own research was about, because uh, this was the era of blogs. This was what, like 2008, 2009, uh, something yes. like that. Uh, no, the, the Lily Software internship would have been 09 because it was the summer before the year I went to Norway. Yeah. So it would have been 09. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah. But point is, heyday of like blogging. Um, and mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time reading ultra orthodox women blogs and writing about, you know, what they had to say about their lives and dating culture and what it was like, you know, it was really interesting, you know, as a young woman, I, we were like 21 when this all went down. Um, and right. I was definitely old enough to drink because I would bring beer home and we'd like joke that I was like the guy coming home, cracking open a cold one because I was going into Cambridge. Uh, I was the only person going into Cambridge every day. Yes. Um, <laughs> but like our lives, you know, we were college students and, you know, mm -hmm going to parties at MIT on the weekends and like the uh, uh, talking the about, um, you know, trying to like go on weird semi-arranged blind dates to find a husband. And I was like, hmm, we lead very different lives. Yeah, we, we did. We did. Uh, but you know what? I am so glad that they routinely converged over and over again. Um, so the thing is, you know, like you, you were on, you know, the seminary track when you uh, told me about this internship and I was a, a plucky gender studies student that had just learned about gender being a social construct kind of before Woo! the big cultural blow up about that and I, I was doing an independent study about trans theory and studying queer theory all the time so I applied for this internship and I said that I wanted to talk about trans issues and what I ended up doing my uh, research was about uh, transgender identity and gender segregated Jewish ritual and so how trans individuals yeah, I, you know, and I would, now I want to find that paper because, uh, A, I'm like, did I say anything ignorant? Uh, because I'm not a trans person and it was prior to, it was 2009. So we're, I, I don't know. But on the other hand, I'm also like, it's kind of nuts that I just bold face went into that that early. Um, and I presented that in front of Brandeis faculty. Like the the confidence that I used to have before I was taking bipolar medication <laughs> is like fucking out of control. I think it's like a different version of me that no longer exists is like the pre lamictal Hannah at all the years all the way up until 27 had this incredible i like alternating between depression and like the biggest confidence I've ever had, especially in the summer. I'm always manic. Um, but researching that paper was insane. Like there were already obvious because there have always been trans people. Yeah, that's that. Any notion that that was a thing not that you that wasn't a thing that. prior to two thousand fifteen is stupid. You know um, about there's Bob always been trans people. So... Uh, no. Oh, story time. Uh, this is one of my uh -huh. favorite Holocaust education things. Um, so mm -hmm. you know all of the like very famous pictures of like the Nazis burning all the books. Yes. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oftentimes, the, what is depicted in those pictures is one very specific historic situation. Um, there was a gentleman in Germany by the name of Magnus Hirschfeld, and he was super Jewish and also super gay. Um, and in the 20s, he had this research institute, uh, you know, not the terms we would use today by any means, but studying, you know, queer people, studying LGBTQ, studying trans people, um, not from a perspective of like as specimens or, but really about, you know, like, well, what is queer sexuality? How does it happen? How do these people experience their own lives? Um, very much like, you know, early versions of like queer studies and the Nazis got a hold of his like library and they just burnt it to the ground. Um, and then he moved to France and died of a broken heart. Um, but yeah, there was just in the, in the twenties and thirties, there was all of this really amazing and groundbreaking research happening in Germany. And then the Nazis came to power and set us back like 70 years. Oh, God. Yeah, we love how that happened. And, you know, and I'm sure that if uh, we had been able to preserve any of that, then that probably would have either played into my paper or there already would have been more work prior to that. You know, like that. Yeah, there there just would have been more stuff done just because we would have had that resource material and it kind of sucks. But I was excited that I did manage to find, you know, blogs and some sources. It wasn't like there were no entire books Mm -hmm. uh, to my knowledge. I mean, I'm also like, again, memory like a spaghetti strainer. I must have researched from somewhere. So maybe there maybe at some point I found a book. Um, But yeah, it's it's crazy that I delved into that. And then also uh, the research I was doing with Joyce Antler, uh, I actually just found this out because I, I doing my periodic paranoid search of my uh, legal name on Google. Uh, that book got published and I got mentioned in the acknowledgments is the radical Jewish feminism book. And it got published in 2020. And I was just not aware because that's a, a over a 10 year gap between when I was actually helping with the book and when it got published. So it's it it's cool gender studies hannah is somewhat preserved uh and i offhand mentioned earlier i was the only student going to cambridge and it was for the coolest reason ever Uh, joyce was having me research uh radical jewish feminists that were in uh women's feminism collectives in the 70s and she had me at the schlesinger archive at harvard going through original source papers like archival papers like leaflets that they'd hand out on campus and like literature and flyers and all kinds of other stuff that they're holding at schlesinger uh that was that was so fucking cool and it was also very funny to i I bought a harvard sweater and it was like you know summers when they're doing tours and shit i was just faking out people like oh yeah i'm a harvard student uh, exam exams are hell i was always saying that i was like exams are hell <laughs> Ooh, i okay good to know that this exists because should i ever teach the class that i taught last semester again uh it's gonna be one of the books i assign hell yes i i'm so uh, yeah and it, it's a, like a nice 
easy book to teach. It's not like like a mega book. It's a, a nice, easy paperback to teach. So I'm I'm excited that I could provide that for you. Yeah, uh, and then that offhand, like lot, one of the that cool looks a lot easier than uh, Engendering Judaism, which is sad because Engendering Judaism is one of my favorite books of all time. Uh, yeah. Well, I, well, now I need to read that. Um, and the book that I actually, you know, I just found out that I was in it. I haven't actually bought it yet, but I will. Um, Dr. Antler, if somehow you end up listening to this, <laughs> I will. Um, yeah. Uh, I, first off, I loved walking into Schlesinger Archive with Dr. Antler and her just dramatically being like, this is my research assistant. Because, <laughs> like, people seem to all know who she was. Like, I, academia celebrities are any... Any kind of subculture celebrity is always so interesting. Is you, you get to watch people react only in very specific areas, like a, a archival library. Um, and then uh, the coolest thing that happened there, though, is this one day I was just chatting with the librarians and archivists, and they're like, well, you know, this is an archive for women's history. If you know any women in history that you can think of off the top of your head that you might want to see holdings for, you know, just tell us. Maybe we have something. And I out of nowhere my head just went like hey uh, do you have anything for may west and they're like oh let me look it up and then they look it up in the computer and they're like oh we have two boxes of holdings at this other library we'll transfer them over do you want to look at them tomorrow and i'm like yeah i'll, I'll stay late tomorrow so like i did my usual research and then i spent like a couple of hours going through two boxes of shit that may west left at her ex's house ah! <laughs> <laughs> breakup letter breakup letter breakup letter yeah it, it was it was a lot of mundane shit you know it, it cracked me up about this is i'm now i wonder because it was like a adhd pile of papers that i would have in my corner but from the 1930s it was just like fire insurance paperwork notes written down picture of your sister like no like real rhyme or reason uh there's a yoga book in there like she was a spiritualist she was she's one of the, the table wrapping uh, ghost humans um and she was a yoga person uh, and but the best thing I found in there by far is that there was a a, a book of a poetry written by one of her stalkers. <laughs> it was like was the poetry was like, any good? Um, it was all shit like him. Like I want to come down the chimney and smell your hair and shit. Like I like all kinds of stuff oh. like about how beautiful she is oh. and yeah. I don't remember if it was like structurally good. Um, See, but this, I remember is... being like, wow, some things never change. I was about to say this <laughs> is the problem of creepy entitled like people, but also dudes mm -hmm. is like yeah. Not only you know obviously the creepiness and the awfulness, but like they never produce anything worthwhile no <laughs> like the fan art's always bad um <laughs> it's like i made i made you this picture and it's like the napoleon dynamite drawing um like <laughs> oh my god but yeah that, that was that was incredible um and schlesinger by the way is a is a public archive i didn't have like any kind of i had some specific access to go through a certain box of papers but other than that uh if you are in cambridge uh and you are by what was originally the radcliffe part of harvard the original seven sisters that got eaten um, definitely visit the Schlesinger Archive. Uh, and also, fun fact, they have all of, uh, Julia Child's cookbook manuscripts over there. So, so what I'm hearing is the next time I go to Boston, date night at mm. the Schlesinger Archives. 
Oh, yes. Oh, my God. We love, we love Boston. And then we also had that bizarre um, trip to New Orleans for the Jewish Women's Philanthropy Con uh, Conference where we took a bus tour of the, uh, the Katrina aftermath, mm -hmm. which crazy uh yep. that they did that at all um i i felt kind of weird about it like uh, i don't want to on one hand it was like a, a good thing to know from like news and civic engagement and like it stuck in my head on the other hand i'm like were we just like touring a poor neighborhood like it was a tourist that i i i, I, I don't know how i feel and i still remember the um they still, like, at that time, they still had, like, X's and markings yep. on the houses of, like, there's bodies in here. There aren't bodies in here. Um, and I'm like, uh, whoa. Um, it's, yeah. It, it's it, crazy from a historical perspective that we saw that, but a little weird they did a bus tour. Yeah. The length of time <laughs> yeah. that that devastation continued to last is, like, absolutely mm -hmm. unconscionable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um they they sure take a lot of time to fix hurricane damage in this country by god um, especially you know of... when it happens to poor black and brown people yeah. like let us be clear um, when we were there the french quarter was hopping <laughs> yeah the french quarter was absolutely hopping i, I drank a, a hurricane and it, it uh, put me right through the floor um <laughs> I, I was, yeah, I was, no, French that was an interesting awesome. place to go with sheltered Jewish private school Orthodox Jewish girls. Let me tell you what. Oh yeah, no, that was the coolest thing about that group. Honestly, is that it was they picked like six people out of like a hundred applicants, and two of them happened to be me and Marley uh, somehow. Um, and uh, then we had three people from out of the country and three people in the country. Uh, two people were Orthodox and uh, keeping kosher. One person was from Germany, as uh, vegan, um, and that, like you couldn't take us anywhere. <laughs> Like we had to find vegan places with kosher vegan options all the time. Um, no, there's the one grad student from Israel. Is one person from Poland, one person from England, one person from Germany. Is a grad student from Israel, um, whose name I forget, but I had a, a nasty crush on her. Oh my god, um, that. <laughs> but yeah, uh, that internship was awesome that's the only time i've ever seen a mikvah in person is when they took us to tour a mikvah which is a ritual bath uh goyim um but that was a cool mikvah too wasn't there something like specific about that like historically uh or? that is so if you've ever read the book the red tent um which is like mm -hmm. bible fan fiction um about sarah um no dina oops um, the woman who wrote that helped to fund it and start it because her other life is like writing feminist inclusive Jewish life life moment stuff. Um, and mm -hmm. so the mikvah is not it's it's a community liberal like owned and operated mikvah because most mikvahs are operated by the local Orthodox synagogues and like that makes it a lot easier and like mentally you know chiller for you know like if trans folks want to go to do like gender affirmation ceremonies or like if you know liberal rabbis want to go do conversions or you know any any number of things that kind of fall outside of the normal like lady gets her period goes to the mikvah um 
mm-hmm. framework if people want to do things outside of that like very narrow framework it is a space that like really encourages people to use it for all sorts of reasons which you know there's something very like spiritually resonant about water and like using water to mark transition and one of the things of progressive judaism in the last you know like 20 30 years is taking this ritual which for the non-jews on the podcast has been to a certain degree very much about like regimenting women's sexuality as related to their periods and like demarcating certain times that like people can and cannot have sex um and you know take it into a like okay well you know historically this marks the boundary between like menstruating and not and therefore available to have sex and not um and like what are some other you know life cycle situations where you might want to demarcate so you know if you're transitioning uh if you're transitioning genders or you know if you're entering menopause or if you're starting cancer treatments um these are some of the more common like outside of the standard uh norm of how people are using that particular ritual today um, this concludes your Jewish studies lesson for the day. <laughs> yeah. And I'm glad we brought it up because now I'm, I'm starting to, cause I'm like sitting there when I was describing my research earlier, like, where was I even pulling sources from? And then it occurred to me, right. I interviewed people at that mikvah and we went to that mikvah to, I mean, the, the mikvah was a group trip. Everybody went there, but I talked to people at that mikvah because they were already doing gender affirmation ceremonies at that mikvah. Mm-hmm. Um, in, so a million points them because again this is 2009 so we yeah yeah trans I, I like Judaism. Con- popular consciousness of like trans people exist uh i think was like yeah that was just it was starting just to jump starting. in I, yeah because it would have been you know Laverne Cox is the first person to get on a magazine with it. Mm -hmm. And then Caitlyn Jenner showed up and people seem to conveniently forget (laughs) that Laverne Cox showed up because like Orange is the New Black was like kind of the big. Yeah. um, Unless uh, like, I mean, there are, of course, lots of Hedwig and the Angry Inch and your Rocky Horrors and uh, stuff like that. But like the first, I think the first like Orange is the New Black was it we go really, really, Yeah, really and, and I think yeah. first example in public media, because a lot of the examples that you gave, like often, you know, that like Hedwig is written by, mm-hmm. you know, I do not believe that trans people were involved in the writing of Hedwig, unless I am wrong. No. Almost always. Yeah, and it's, a, and it's not a traditional Hedwig. trans, yeah, it's it's not like a, well, I don't know. I, it's it's not like and a like, traditional trans narrative where it's meant to explain things to straight people, or not like traditional mass media narrative. Sure, sure, like, sure. They have to they have to explain transgender identity to cis people, and I feel like in Hedwig, it was sort of already known that this audience is queer right. and a little bit more niche if you're watching that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it was it was kind of orange is the new yeah. black. Um, yeah, no, but it's it's crazy to think about now on a major like tv show Mm -hmm. where like transness is part of her story but it's not like Mm -hmm. the whole thing like she's allowed to have you Mm -hmm. know she's allowed to have a character arc outside of like being trans and the actress herself is also trans which you know laverne cox is amazing Mm -hmm. end of (laughs) 
Yeah, Laverne Cox is fantastic, and I remember that magazine cover was beautiful. I hated that Call Me Caitlin magazine cover. I mean, besides, I mean, like, it was supportive of her, because at the time she hadn't completely gone insane and somehow tried to align herself with TERFs, even though they don't like her. Um, oh. but, um, they, but I remember that art, because the cover, she looked gorgeous, and it was called The Transgender Tipping Point. I remember that, and mm. I remember it being a really big deal for the people I was in college with. Like sure. I was, yeah, I was in college with uh, several people that were trans. The first trans person I met, I did not, uh, no, they did not come out to me for like a full year. Like I just, uh, I was under the impression they were cis until like we shared a hotel room together for a comic con, and they just kind of like quietly told me because like she didn't. Um, want to like catch me off because I, I said something about like oh we're gonna put the guys in this room and the girls in this room and so she kind of took me aside and came out as trans I was like oh okay well that's cool so it's, uh, none of my damn business I don't care that you didn't say anything like oh that's cool but th this is why I don't the turf crowd of like oh we always know and I'm like bitch I didn't know for a full year and a half <laughs> like we studied together all the time we were in a three-person independent study together I didn't know shit, and it was none of my business. Um, yup. Uh, yup, yup. Um, and then also my, my roommate, my college roommate, my senior year was trans, and we roomed together because he didn't, uh, nobody wanted to room with him, you know, it was like the dorms, general dorms at colleges were, you know, like, girls with girls, guys with guys, uh. and uh, he was essentially uh you know like the university doesn't know what to do with that in 2009 so i'm like i'll live with him don't you worry about it but like he, yeah it wouldn't have been cool for him to go into a random roommate situation yeah you know? uh, my my yeah. sophomore year of college barnard accepted its first openly uh transgender guy who like matriculated in um out as a trans guy um and mm -hmm. I will not go into the details of that situation per se, except to say that like Barnard did not know what it was getting itself into, did not prepare, and the situation went about mm -hmm. as well as you would expect. Credit Westchester. They did a great job. You know, as soon as the rooming situation was resolved, I mean, I can't speak to the personal experiences of the trans students at Westchester. I'm sure there's a lot I didn't know, but we had a very supportive uh, LGBT organization. We had a very supportive women and gender studies department. And this trans panic that's happening now, because it's just been a piece of my life for so fucking long it feels like it's coming out of nowhere to me like i am just like what like all of these people complaining have been peeing in bathrooms of trans people their whole lives and suddenly it's a problem now they just don't think they have because we always knew like is i mean really what it comes down to and like mm -hmm. now comes the part that the rabbi lectures on anti-semitism i swear it connects um, is yeah, that no, like this is about at its core the 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 regressive mindset at its core is about maintenance of power structures and they will use any tool of fear coercion and control that they can get their hands on to maintain what ultimately is the goal which is fear and control and maintenance of the existing power structures and, you know, 
we are in a position in America where like, you know, they're trying on so many different fronts. They're trying on the racial front by like, you know, utilizing existing systems of power to, you know, brutalize black and brown people. Um, they're, you know, attempting to take away the rights of bodily autonomy of people who can get pregnant. Um, and I think, you know, in certain ways we are like seeing groups of people, you know, pushing back and not wanting to, and certainly like not as much as it should be, not as evenly as it should be, but like, you know, white people are turning out for Black Lives Matter protests. Women are showing up at the polling places, you know, nice white ladies are showing up at the polling places and saying, hey, you know, we want to protect um, abortion care. And I think, you know, in terms of the L and the G in the LGBTQ umbrella, like, I feel like so many people have, you know, a queer couple that they know who, you know, are, you know, maybe a queer family member, maybe just like a coworker or a friend. And like, I feel like in a lot of ways, that aspect is becoming more and more. And I think, you know, transgender folks are just a convenient scapegoat because one, there's so few of them. And two, it feels so unsettling to like a traditional mindset especially around you know like oh gender roles are this which i think is still very mm -hmm. much a thing in american society of like these are what gender roles are this is what a man is this is what a woman is do not go outside of your box especially for men um and you know these are just people who are trying to live their lives and you know their oppression becomes a tool of the dominant power structure to like use fear of the unknown to like keep people in line and as a result, like, I know, I mean, one, I know so many transgender people, but also I have a lot of friends with trans or, you know, gender non-conforming kids. And like, you know, these are children who their lives are improved so much by just like it being very nonchalant and, you know, having the ability to like be who they are in school and with their friends and like to take that away from them. I mean, like, Yana, you and I, we knew a bunch of queer people when, you know, we first met. Like, we knew a bunch of queer people who were not out yet. Oh, and yeah. Yeah. even seeing, like, how much their lives have changed for the better since they've been able to, like, be open about, like, their lives and get into, like, you know, romantic relationships that are right for them and all. Like, it's, mm -hmm. it's so frustrating to watch. And, like, I said, you know, this is also about anti-Semitism, like... It's not, you know, like, let us not pretend that, like, any of these things happen in a vacuum, right? Like, you know, hatred of Jews, hatred of Black people, hatred of Muslims, hatred of, you know, immigrants, hatred of uh, Latina people. Like, it's all connected. It's all about abuse and control and maintenance of power structures. And they're just looking for what aspect will fire people up enough that they can use it to maintain that control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and gender is like, the, I, part of the reason I got put in gender studies like real early and I got super invested and at one point thought I was even going to go into the like hardcore academia side of it is that I, 
just realized almost immediately that I'm like, there's entire marketing schemes and corporations and industries that are built around the notion that men are men and women are women and there's no thing in between. There's the, the you know, things are branded pink for certain people, uh, you know, like the, it, it, there, there are entire, you know, like the, the gender reveals now are an entire industry, you know, there's all these like party things and stuff like that, you know, yeah. it, it's, it's so, you know, if you bleed, cause America is corporate and is, you can't, mm -hmm. the government and the corporations are attached to each other. And then, the, you know, the American identity is really based around commercials like that whole view of what we were supposed to be like in the 1950s was mostly present in commercials and sitcoms not necessarily in reality of course not. you know yeah and that was very gendered too like the concept of a 1950s housewife was like i mean that's that's why second wave feminism because that gender expectation was slowly killing middle-class white women um mm -hmm. and Right. And like, I want to be very clear, like when I talk about this to talk about like the groups that actually were close enough to it to maybe kind of sort of embody it and therefore be crushed by it was like, that's about class and that's about race. And, you know, mm -hmm. and I think, you know, I think the next piece of it, and I spend a lot of time thinking about this as somebody who works on college campuses is the way in which like, as a woman, like, I still haven't gotten free yet, you know, like the mm -hmm. level of fear that I had in, you know, the recent election about like, how is this election going to go? And how is that going to impact my own bodily autonomy was really terrifying. And I think the next phase really has to be how do we, because I think there's been so much work done in pulling down or broadening the scope of what it can be for women. And what does that then look like for men? Because I tell you what, like the boxes that men are in right now in terms of what they can be in terms of their gender and what they can do and say and express and feel, those boxes are like 1950s housewife narrow for yeah. most men and like, mm -hmm. Because they, it's a, it's a not, it's a tough thing, and a not wanting to admit struggle thing. Like, no, I'm fine. Right. The, the, this box doesn't suck. I'm fine. No, this Everything's box is great. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, we were uh, expressing our feelings a little bit more, and uh, non-gender conforming people are slowly start, or not, not slowly. There's a bigger now uh, than there used to be. Uh, are able to like break out of that box too but this is not a concept that has become popular with cis men um they are still in fact right. and uh, homophobically bullying each other mm -hmm. and part of the challenge is right that like for women embracing our liberation was at least in part about gaining access to um to culturally desirable powerful prestigious roles right like entering the workforce going mm -hmm. into careers gaining access to college education those are all things very like prized by our society but for men with their liberation part of that is embracing and taking on the understanding of themselves needing to like move into things that are less culturally you know prestigious like 
part of men's liberation is like doing their damn fucking dishes um printing their children which like you know i i say this is like somebody who does not yet have children but like has a lot of you know friends who are fathers and you know that's not necessarily seen as like it's not seen as prestigious to like change dirty diapers or to like have your toddler throw up on you but like Mm -hmm. the amount of joy that i watch my friends who are fathers get of like you know changing dirty diapers and having their toddler throw up on them is like you know that's even if it's not glamorous even if it's not prestigious that's part of liberation too you know same as like doing your dishes same as like you know, having areas of your household that you are in charge of and that you um, that you manage and that you are not like helping out around the house, but that you have your areas that you're in charge of and you just take care of them. And it's equitable and everybody has about the same amount of free time. And that's liberatory, we even if good... it's gross. <laughs> <laughs> it's liberatory, even though it's gross. That might be the... Uh title of this episode for all i know um but uh anyway uh we are uh kind of rolling up on time there isn't a real time uh but i try to keep stuff like vaguely close to an hour but we do have like one last uh, era of our lives to cover uh, we'll see if we can we have uh and that's why it's important you know that the spirit of this memoir is that i would love to write a memoir but i don't remember half of the shit that happened because there's too many overlapping plot lines and our plot line has existed for well over a decade and includes a lot of very significant events and living situations so so I anticipated this going a little longer, um, but where we're going to pull to a uh, stop at the moment is I uh, fast forward to 2013. Uh, this is the second time we lived together and we were living, uh, you know, descri- describe that living situation and what you were doing at the time. We can do it from your own words. Uh, so uh, spoiler, Wincoat uh, and RRC. Yes. <laughs> Um, by the way, I want to apologize to your wonderful editor because this is two Jews on a podcast together. We're doing that mm-hmm. thing which um, linguistically is known as collaborative overlapping, which means we've been talking over each other. <laughs> I'm sorry to your editor. <laughs> oh, 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 B is very used to this already. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, but... This is so much easier to edit than Kate's Bunker. So much. <laughs> Um, but yeah, spoiler alert, um, I became a rabbi and my first two years of seminary, we lived together. The first year, it was the two of us and two fellow rabbinical school students who started at the same time as me. Um, and then my second year, it was us, a friend of ours from high school and the ex of another one of our wait no they were dating at the time and then while we were living they together, were they broke up of like another mm-hmm. one of our friends from high school um in this falling apart you know three and a half bedroom ish uh in, mm-hmm. in my bedroom did not ca- my bedroom was what which i found out this is a regional term because i tell this story to people a lot i was living in a mud room which is the room off of a pool 
uh, which we, the pool we had was not operational, but it is the room off of the pool that you're supposed to put your, like, wet shoes and shit in. I was living there for, uh, I think $325 a month, and it was, like, a broom closet. Like, you're not, you're, you're really not supposed to, it's like a vestibule, but specifically for putting wet things down, and I was like, this is fine. Um, it was also attached to a larger living room, <laughs> but I was like, this is fine. And then also, uh, so yeah, like the first year it was three rabbinical, uh, students and the goy living under the stairs, uh, which I loved affectionately referring to myself. And, uh, then the second year, amazing combination of professions. We had the sex shop worker, me, a sex shop worker and stand-up comedian, the, uh, rabbi, uh, in training, uh, the tall ship sailor, uh, and a sheep shearer, um, <laughs> tall, tall ship sailor at the day job. And it's like, God, doing stand-up used to be so easy. <laughs> just... You know, sometimes I forget what an interesting life I've led and then I talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I was hoping to like r remind you of everything, but yeah, uh, RRC, um, yeah, maybe describe RRC because a lot, of, you know, a lot of times when I tell people my friend is a rabbi, they are not immediately imagining you. They're imagining a, a mysterious black-hatted man oh that my became my friend somehow. Um, yeah. Um, so, so the joke that we've been telling recently on the uh, RRC Facebook group, um, the movement we compare ourselves to changes. Some of us say reform, some of us say conservative. But it's whatever, it's like a, a more mainstream liberal movement, but more fun and much more gay. Um, very gay. Very, 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 well, in terms of sheer numbers, not the majority of my classmates were not LGBTQ, but culturally and especially in terms of like the faculty, um, it was the first it was the first rabbinical school in America to admit openly LGBTQ people. And as a result, like a bunch of queer faculty, uh, the president of the Reconstructionist movement is a lesbian and she is amazing. Um, go look up Rabbi Deborah Waxman if you are curious. Um, and the whole premise of the movement is um, basically being honest about the fact that Judaism, like all religions, changes over time and is you know, linked to and exhibits different forms based on the culturally specific moment that it's in. And our founder, Mordecai Kaplan, um, his big thing was like, we live in America. This is a democratic country. It's a country that, you know, in the 1920s, when he was sort of a young rabbi getting started, um, it's a country that is extending the vote to women. It's a country that believes in, you know, like academic scholarship um, because he was, you know, he was affiliated with Columbia University. He taught at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York um, and wanted very much to sort of bring those values of democracy and democratic values and what for the time was quite progressive in terms of, you know, rights for women um, into the Jewish mainstream. And as a movement, we never really took off, um, I think, partially because, you know, Kaplan was so ahead of his time and also the way he thinks about like Jewish process tends to be pretty intensive. And sometimes, you know, you just want to like go to synagogue, do what the rabbi tells you and go home. Um, but, you know, really thinking through like, how do we maintain 
our essential Jewish character and not say like, oh, you know, Judaism is just kind of about, you know, social justice or having good values. No, Judaism is like a really culturally specific thing, but also has the ability to change and meet the modern progressive moment. And as a result, you know, open first seminary to be open to LGBTQ uh, students. It was the second seminary to ordain women only because it was not open when uh, the Hebrew Union College started ordaining women. Um, we ordained our first female rabbi like the year after the Hebrew Union College did. Um, you know, my advisor in rabbinical school was um, a lesbian who founded the LGBTQ uh, Hever Kadisha, which is the Jewish Burial Society, um, because when she was a young rabbi in the 90s in the AIDS epidemic, there were no Jewish burial society in town would handle um, and prepare the bodies of her gay friends oh, for death. No. And so she was like, yeah. cool, well, after that, we'll do it ourselves. Um, and mm -hmm. that Hever Kadisha is still, you know, training others all around the country because, you know, it it is very much like in keeping with, you know, Jewish values and progressive values. Um, so yeah, uh, Rabbi Linda Holtzman is a badass. Um, and, you know, just really like, for me, at least those were years of like living with, you know, you, Hannah, never really felt like in any way, shape or form counter to, you know, or like in conflict with what I was doing in school, because I think there's this idea um, among a lot of people. And to be frank, that idea exists because it's based, in fact, for a lot of segments of the population that like, religious people get into it because you know they're interested in power and control and judging people and like forcing them to behave in a certain way and like sort of this like stiff lipped morality and for me it was very much like you know jews are all different sorts of people um and we meet them where they're at and i care much more about like are you being a decent friend, partner? Are you acting with integrity? Are you committed to, you know, exploring your Jewish heritage and to making that a part of your life? Then like, oh, you know, do you eat shrimp? Checkbox, yes or no. Do you mm -hmm. go to synagogue every week? Checkbox, yes or no. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, certainly, you know, any any religious movement is going to have its own areas of growth. Like, religion is fundamentally a conservative thing in that it, you know, is trying to preserve heritage and traditions and like, you know, is not the quickest thing to change ever. Um, and in that regard, like, you know, kind of see myself as a conservative person in that regard in terms of like, you know, oh, the traditions of the past are important and meaningful and like we should, you know, not discard them or like throw them off. But, you know, fundamentally, like, what good are those traditions if we use them to, you know, oppress people? Like, that's... Gatekeep people yeah. from, you know, value, valuable uh, spiritual insight exactly. and everything, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and that, that was why I what I went to, into in my paper, too, with uh, Hadassah Brandeis, is I was just like, I don't think that you guys should 
gatekeep trans people from this kind of spirituality and you know if you kind of go like you can't cross the i think i think the paper was called crossing the mahitza um and i was like you know i don't think that lack of compliance to these rules or should be something that prevents right. people from wanting to speak is seek this kind of spirituality especially if it's part of their ethnicity right and like what's um, funny now is you know mm -hmm. i have friends who are trans and non-binary rabbis and having conversations with them you know many many years later when i was you know deep into rabbinical school of like well, you know, if I'm in an Orthodox synagogue and I'm interacting with, you know, a person who practices Shomer Nagia, which means that they won't touch uh, people of the opposite sex that they're not related to by blood, like, what are they going to do with me? Like, I am, you know, I'm, I don't fall into the binary. I'm not a woman. I'm not a man. I am. So how do, how do they even interact with that? Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, you know our our ancestors and you know us as well like the way in which societies organize themselves change over time and as you know even as we you know preserve our traditions we have to like be aware that like things change and what i've seen you know in terms of the way that you can kind of take those traditions and adapt them to fit a new paradigm it's more powerful even like it brings that much more because it's not just something you're doing by rote it's you know like let's go back to that mikvah example you know like oh you know a woman using the mikvah for you know traditional reasons which is something that i do you know sometimes it feels very meaningful and sometimes it's like okay come in go out you're done whatever um and for you know folks who have the ability to say like oh I'm going to use this for a moment in my life that feels really spiritually relevant and that I thought about and had to kind of adapt it, it can feel that much more meaningful because it's something that they've sort of thought through for themselves of like, this is how I want to use my tradition and my heritage to honor this, you know, thing that maybe my religion didn't have a ritual for before now, but like I've created one and like how meaningful is it to, for me to get to use the language of my heritage to acknowledge this amazing thing that's happening in my life. And that's the thing I always loved about Judaism the most. It's a conversation and it's evolving. Uh, and that is an amazing and beautiful thing. And I, I wish so many people weren't uh, stuck in religious boxes when we need morality and ethical guidance and spirituality more than ever and speaking of conversations this one unfortunately needs to roll to an end uh thus it will fall into the category of too long i don't know maybe that's just a confidence thing joe rogan loves going for four hours but you know hey nah i don't have like, that kind uh, of time nah. yeah nah, ain't, ain't nobody got time for that shit except Marley, joe rogan <laughs> except joe rogan marley thank you so much yeah. for coming on this was a phenomenal trip down memory lane and i'm so excited that we managed to cover everything uh that i wanted to actually hit on so that that's awesome yeah. um and thank you super fun